Section 13 of Hans Christian Andersen Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joyce Martin. Hans Christian Andersen Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 2, 1844 to 1847 by Hans Christian Andersen, translated by H. P. Paul. The Shepherdess and the Sweep, by Hans Christian Andersen, 1845. Have you ever seen an old wooden cupboard quite black with age, and ornamented with carved foliage and curious figures? Well, just such a cupboard stood in a parlor, and had been left to the family as a legacy by the great-grandmother. It was covered from top to bottom, with carved roses and tulips. The most curious scrolls were drawn upon it, and out of them peeped little stag's heads with antlers. In the middle of the cupboard door was the carved figure of a man most ridiculous to look at. He grinned at you, for no one could call it laughing. He had goat's legs, little horns on his head, and a long beard. The children in the room always called him Major General Field Sergeant Commander Billy Goat's Legs. It was certainly a very difficult name to pronounce, and there are very few who ever received such a title. But then it seemed wonderful how he came to be carved at all. Yet there he was, always looking at the table under the looking-glass, where stood a very pretty little shepherdess made of china. Her shoes were gilt, and her dress had a red rose or an ornament. She wore a hat and carried a crook that were both gilded and looked very bright and pretty. Close by her side stood a little chimney-sweep, as black as coal, and also made of china. He was, however, quite as clean and neat as any other china figure. He only represented a black chimney-sweep, and the china workers might just as well have made him a prince had they felt inclined to do so. He stood holding his ladder quite handily, and his face was as fair and rosy as a girl's. Indeed, that was rather a mistake. It should have had some black marks on it. He and the shepherdess had been placed close together, side by side, and being so placed, they became engaged to each other, for they were very well suited, both being made of the same sort of china, and being equally fragile. Close to them stood another figure three times as large as they were, and also made of china. He was an old chinaman who could nod his head, and used to pretend that he was the grandfather of the shepherdess, although he could not prove it. He, however, assumed authority over her, and therefore, when Major General Field Sergeant Commander Billy Goat's legs asked for the little shepherdess to be his wife, he nodded his head to show that he consented. "'You will have a husband,' said the old Chinaman to her, "'who I really believe is made of mahogany. "'He will make you a lady of Major General Field Sergeant Commander Billy Goat's legs. "'He has the whole cupboard full of silver plate, "'which he keeps locked up in secret drawers.' "'I won't go into the dark cupboard,' said the little shepherdess. "'I have heard that he has eleven china wives there already.' "'Then you shall be the twelfth, said the Chinaman. "'Tonight, as soon as you hear a rattling in the old cupboard, "'you shall be married, as true as I am a Chinaman.' "'And then he nodded his head and fell asleep. 
Then the little shepherdess cried and looked at her sweetheart, the china chimney sweep. I must entreat you, said she, to go out with me into the wide world, for we cannot stay here. I will do whatever you wish, said the little chimney sweep. Let us go immediately. I think I shall be able to maintain you with my profession. If we were but safely down from the table, said she, I shall not be happy till we are really out in the world. Then he comforted her and showed her how to place her little foot on the carved edge and gilt-leaf ornaments of the table. He brought his little ladder to help her, and so they contrived to reach the floor. But when they looked at the old cupboard, they saw it was all in an uproar. The carved stags pushed out their heads, raised their antlers, and twisted their necks. The major general sprung up in the air and cried out to the old Chinaman, "'They are running away! They are running away!' The two were rather frightened at this, so they jumped into the drawer of the window seat. Here were three or four packs of cards not quite complete, and a doll's theatre, which had been built up very neatly. A comedy was being performed in it, and all the queens of diamonds, clubs, and hearts, and spades sat in the first row, fanning themselves with tulips. And behind them stood all the knaves, showing that they had heads above and below, as playing cards generally have. The play was about two lovers who were not allowed to marry, and the shepherdess wept because it was so like her own story. "'I cannot bear it,' she said. "'I must get out of the drawer.' But when they reached the floor and cast their eyes on the table, there was the old Chinaman awake and shaking his whole body, till all at once down he came to the floor. "'Plump!' "'The old Chinaman is coming!' cried the little stewardess in a fright and down she fell on one knee. "'I have thought of something,' said the chimney-sweep. "'Let us get into the great potpourri jar which stands in the corner. There we can lie on rose-leaves and lavender, and throw salt in his eyes if he comes near us.' "'No, that will never do,' said she, "'because I know that the Chinaman and the potpourri jar were lovers once, and there always remains behind a feeling of goodwill between those who have been so intimate as that. "'No,' There is nothing left for us but to go out into the wide world. Have you really courage enough to go out into the wide world with me? said the chimney sweep. Have you thought how large it is, and that we can never come back here again? Yes, I have, she replied. When the chimney sweep saw that she was quite firm, he said, My way is through the stove and up the chimney. Have you courage to creep with me through the firebox and the iron pipe? When we get to the chimney, I shall know how to manage very well. We shall soon climb too high for anyone to reach us, and we shall come through a hole in the top out into the wide world. So he led her to the door of the stove. It looks very dark, said she. Still she went in with him through the stove and through the pipe, where it was as dark as pitch. Now we are in the chimney, said he, and look, there is a beautiful star shining above it. It was a real star shining down on them, as it would show them the way. So they clambered and crept on, and a frightful steep pace it was. But the chimney sweep helped her and supported her till they got higher and higher. He showed her the best places on which to set her little china foot. So at last they reached the top of the chimney, 
and sat themselves down, for they were very tired, as may be supposed. The sky with all its stars was over their heads, and below were the roofs of the town. They could see for a very long distance out into the wide world, and the poor little shepherdess leaned her head on her chimney-sweep's shoulder and wept till she washed the grit off her sash. The world was so different from what she expected. "'This is too much,' she said. "'I cannot bear it. The world is too large. Oh, I wish I were safe back on the table again under the looking-glass. I shall never be happy till I am safe back again. Now I have followed you out into the wide world. You will take me back if you love me.' Then the chimney-sweep tried to reason with her and spoke of the old Chinaman and of the Major General Field Sergeant Commander Billy Goat's legs, but she sobbed so bitterly and kissed her little chimney-sweep till he was obliged to do all she asked, foolish as it was. And so, with a great deal of trouble, they climbed down the chimney and crept through the pipe and stove, which were certainly not very pleasant places. Then they stood in the dark firebox and listened behind the door to hear what was going on in the room all was quiet they peeped out alas there lay the old chinaman on the floor he had fallen down from the table as he attempted to run after them and was broken into three pieces his back had separated entirely and his head had rolled into a corner of the room the major general stood in his old place and appeared lost in thought. "'This is terrible,' said the little shepherdess. "'My poor old grandfather is broken to pieces, and it is our fault. I shall never live after this.' And she wrung her little hands. "'He can be riveted,' said the chimney-sweep. "'He can be riveted. Do not be so hasty. If they cement his back and put a good rivet in it, he will be as good as new and be able to say as many disagreeable things to us as ever. Do you think so? said she. And then they climbed up to the table and stood in their old places. As we have done no good, said the chimney sweep, we might as well have remained here instead of taking so much trouble. I wish grandfather was riveted, said the shepherdess. Will it cost much, I wonder? And she had her wish. The family had the Chinaman's back mended and a strong rivet put through his neck. He looked as good as new, but he could no longer nod his head. "'You have become proud since your fall broke you to pieces,' said Major General Field Sergeant Commander Billy Goat's legs. "'You have no reason to give yourself such airs.' "'Am I to have her or not?' The chimney-sweep and the little shepherdess looked piteously at the old Chinaman, for they were afraid he might nod, but he was not able. Besides, it was so tiresome to be always telling strangers he had a rivet in the back of his neck. And so the little china people remained together and were glad of the grandfather's rivet and continued to love each other till they were broken to pieces. End of section 13, The Shepherdess and the Sweep, recording by Joyce Martin. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? 
That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Section 14 of Hans Christian Andersen Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul C. Newman. Hans Christian Andersen, Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 2, 1844 to 1847, by Hans Christian Andersen. Translated by H. P. Paul. Holger Dunsk. In Denmark, there stands an old castle named Cronenberg, close by the Sound of Elsinore, where large ships, both English, Russian, and Prussian, pass by hundreds every day. And they salute the old castle with cannons. Boom! Boom! Which is as if they said, Good day! And the cannons of the old castle answer, Boom! Which means, Many thanks! In winter no ships sail by, for the whole sound is covered with ice as far as the Swedish coast, and has quite the appearance of a high road. The Danish and Swedish flags wave, and Danes and Swedes say good day and thank you to each other, not with cannons, but with a friendly shake of the hand, and they exchange white bread and biscuits with each other, because foreign articles taste the best. But the most beautiful sight of all is the old castle of Cronenberg, where Holger Dansk sits in the deep, dark cellar into which no one goes. He is clad in iron and steel, and rests his head on his strong arm. His long beard hangs down upon the marble table, into which it has become firmly rooted. He sleeps and dreams, but in his dreams he sees everything that happens in Denmark. On each Christmas Eve an angel comes to him, and tells him that all he has dreamed is true, and that he may go to sleep again in peace, as Denmark is not yet in any real danger. But should danger ever come, then Holger Dansk will rouse himself, and the table will burst asunder as he draws out his beard. Then he will come forth in his strength, and strike a blow that shall sound in all the countries of the world. An old grandfather sat and told his little grandson all this about Holger Dansk, and the boy knew that what his grandfather told him must be true. As the old man related this story, he was carving an image in wood to represent Holger Dansk, to be fastened to the prow of a ship, for the old grandfather was a carver in wood, that is, one who carved figures, for the heads of ships, according to the names given to them. And now he had carved Holger Dansk, who stood there, erect and proud with his long beard, holding in one hand his broad battle-axe, while with the other he leaned on the Danish arms. The old grandfather told the little boy a great deal about Danish men and women who had distinguished themselves in olden times, so that he fancied he knew as much even as Holger Dansk himself who, after all, could only dream, and when the little fellow went to bed, he thought so much about it 
that he actually pressed his chin against the counterpane, and imagined that he had a long beard which had become rooted to it. But the old grandfather remained sitting at his work and carving away at the last part of it, which was the Danish arms, and when he had finished he looked at the whole figure, and thought of all he had heard and read, and what he had that evening related to his little grandson. Then he nodded his head, wiped his spectacles, and put them on, and said, Ah, yes, Holger Dansk will not appear in my lifetime, but the boy who is in bed there may very likely live to see him when the event really comes to pass. And the old grandfather nodded again, and the more he looked at Holger Dansk, the more satisfied he felt that he had carved a good image of him. It seemed to glow with the colour of life. The armour glittered like iron and steel. The hearts in the Danish arms grew more and more red, while the lions with gold crowns on their heads were leaping up. The Danish arms consists of three lions between nine hearts. That is the most beautiful coat of arms in the world, said the old man. The lions represent strength, and the hearts gentleness and love. And as he gazed on the uppermost lion, he thought of King Canute, who chained great England to Denmark's throne. And he looked at the second lion, and thought of Valdemar, who untied Denmark, and conquered the Vandals. The third lion reminded him of Margaret, who united Denmark, Sweden, and Norway. But when he gazed at the red hearts, their colours glowed more deeply, even as flames, and his memory followed each in turn. The first led him to a dark, narrow prison, in which sat a prisoner, a beautiful woman, daughter of Christian the Fourth, Eleanor Ulfeld. This highly gifted princess was the wife of Corfitz Ulfeld. He was accused of high treason, and Eleanor, whose only fault was the truest love, to her unhappy husband, was compelled to remain for twenty-two years in a miserable dungeon till the death of her prosecutor, Queen Sophia Amelia. And the flame became a rose on her bosom, and its blossoms were not more pure than the heart of this noblest and best of all Danish women. Ah, yes, that is indeed a noble heart in the Danish arms, said the grandfather and his spirit followed the second flame, which carried him out to sea. In the naval battle which took place in the Kyrga Bay in 1710 between the Danes and the Swedes, Fitfelt's ship, the Danebrog, took fire to save the town of Kyrga, and the Danish fleet which were being driven by the wind towards his burning ship, he blew up his vessel with himself and the whole crew. Out to sea where cannons roared and the ships lay shrouded in smoke, and the flaming heart attached itself to the breast of Hvitfield in the form of the ribbon of an order. As he blew himself and his ship into the air, in order to save the fleet. And the third flame led him to Greenland's wretched huts, where the preacher Hans Egede, Hans Egede went to Greenland in 1721 and worked there for fifteen long years amid incredible privations and difficulties. He not only spread the Christian religion, but was himself the pattern of a noble Christian. Hans Egede ruled with love in every word and action. 
The flame was as a star on his breast, and added another heart to the Danish arms. And as the old grandfather's spirit followed the next hovering flame, he knew whither it would lead him. In a peasant woman's humble room stood Frederick the Sixth. Once, while on a journey to the western coast of Jutland, the king came to the cottage of an old woman. As he was leaving, she ran after him and asked to write his name on the beam as a remembrance of his visit. The king turned back and complied with her request. Through his whole lifetime he interested himself for the peasantry, and on that account it was that the Danish peasants begged to be allowed to carry the coffin to the royal vault at Roskilde, four Danish miles from Copenhagen. Frederick the Sixth, writing his name with chalk on the beam. The flame trembled on his breast and in his heart, and it was in the peasant's room that his heart became one for the Danish arms. The old grandfather wiped his eyes, for he had known King Frederick with his silvery locks and his honest blue eyes, and had lived for him, and he folded his hands and remained for some time silent. Then his daughter came to him and said it was getting late that he ought to rest for a while, and that supper was on the table. "'What you have been carving is very beautiful, Grandfather,' said she. "'Holga Dansk and the old coat of arms. It seems to me as if I have seen the face somewhere.' "'No, that is impossible,' replied the old Grandfather. "'But I have seen it, and I have tried to carve it in wood, as I have retained it in my memory.' It was a long time ago, while the English fleet lay in the roads on the 2nd of April. On the 2nd of April, 1801, occurred the sanguinary naval engagement between the Danes and the English, under Sir Hyde Parker and Nelson, when we showed that we were true ancient Danes. I was on board the Denmark in Stine Bill's squadron, I had a man by my side whom even the cannonballs seemed to fear. He sung old songs in a merry voice, and fired and fought as if he were something more than a man. I still remember his face, but from whence he came or whither he went I know not. No one knows. I have often thought it might have been Holger Dansk himself who had swam down to us from Cronenberg to help us in the hour of danger. That was my idea, and there stands his likeness. The wooden figure threw a gigantic shadow on the wall, and even on part of the ceiling. It seemed as if the real Holger Dansk stood behind it, for the shadow moved, but this was no doubt caused by the flame of the lamp not burning steadily. Then the daughter-in-law kissed the old grandfather and led him to a large armchair by the table. And she and her husband, who was the son of the old man, and the father of the little boy who lay in bed, sat down to supper with him. The old grandfather talked of the Danish lions and the Danish hearts, emblems of strength and gentleness, and explained quite clearly that there is another strength than that which lies in a sword. And he pointed to a shelf where lay a number of old books, and amongst them a collection of Holberg's plays, which are much read and are so clever and amusing that it is easy to fancy we have known the people of those days who are described in them. He knew how to fight also, said the old man, for he lashed the follies and prejudices of people during his whole life. 
Then the grandfather nodded to a place above the looking-glass, where hung an almanac, with a representation of the round tower, the astronomical observatory at Copenhagen, upon it, and said, Tycho Brahe was another of those who used a sword, but not one to cut into the flesh and bone, but to make the way of the stars of heaven clear and plain to be understood. And then he, whose father belonged to my calling, yes, he the son of the old image carver, he whom we ourselves have seen with his silvery locks and his broad shoulders, whose name is known in all lands, yes, he was a sculptor, while I am only a carver. Holger Dansk can appear in marble, so that people in all countries of the world may hear of the strength of Denmark. Now let us drink the health of Bertel, Bertel Thorvaldsen. But the little boy in bed saw plainly the old castle of Cronenberg, and the sound of Elsinore and Holger Dansk far down in the cellar, with his beard rooted to the table, and dreaming of everything that was passing above him. And Holger Dansk did dream of the little humble room in which the image carver sat. He heard all that had been said, and he nodded in his dream, saying, Ah, yes, remember me, you Danish people. Keep me in your memory. I will come to you in the hour of need. The bright morning light shone over Cronenberg, and the wind brought the sound of the hunting horn across from the neighbouring shores. The ships sailed by and saluted the castle with the boom of the cannon, and Cronenberg returned the salute. Boom! But the roaring cannons did not awake Holger Dansk, for they meant only good morning and thank you. They must fire in another fashion before he awakes. But wake he will, for there is energy yet in Holger Dansk. End of Holger Dansk. Recording by Paul C. Newman of Sheffield, UK. Storyfolksinger.co.uk Section 15 of Hans Christian Andersen Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joyce Martin. Hans Christian Andersen, Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 2, 1844 to 1847 by Hans Christian Andersen. The Bell in the narrow streets of a large town people often heard in the evening when the sun was setting and his last rays gave a golden tint to the chimney-pots a strange noise which resembled the sound of a church bell it only lasted an instant for it was lost in the continual roar of traffic and hum of voices which rose from the town the evening bell is ringing people used to say the sun is setting those who walked outside the town where the houses were less crowded and interspersed by gardens and little fields saw the evening sky much better and heard the sound of the bell much more clearly it seemed as though the sound came from a church deep in the calm fragrant wood and thither people looked with devout feelings 
a considerable time elapsed one said to the other i really wonder if there is a church out in the wood the bell has indeed a strange sweet sound shall we go there and see what the cause of it is the rich drove the poor walked but the way seemed to them extraordinarily long and when they arrived at a number of willow trees on the border of the wood they sat down looked up into the great branches and thought they were now really in the wood a confectioner from the town also came out and put up a stall there then came another confectioner who hung a bell over his stall which was covered with pitch to protect it from the rain but the clapper was wanting when people came home they used to say that it had been very romantic and that really means something else than merely taking tea three persons declared that they had gone as far as the end of the wood that they had always heard the strange sound but there it seemed to them as if it came from the town one of them wrote verses about the bell and said that it was like the voice of a mother speaking to an intelligent and beloved child no tune he said was sweeter than the sound of the bell the emperor of the country heard of it and declared that he who would really find out where the sound came from should receive the title of bell-ringer to the world even if there was no bell at all now many went out into the wood for the sake of this splendid birth but only one of them came back with some sort of explanation none of them had gone far enough nor had he and yet he said that the sound of the bell came from a large owl in a hollow tree it was a wisdom owl which continually knocked its head against the tree but he was unable to say with certainty whether its head or the hollow trunk of the tree was the cause of the noise he was appointed bell-ringer to the world and wrote every year a short dissertation on the owl but by this means people did not become any wiser than they had been before it was just confirmation day the clergyman had delivered a beautiful and touching sermon the candidates were deeply moved by it it was indeed a very important day for them and they were all at once transformed from mere children to grown-up people the childish soul was to fly over as it were into a more reasonable being the sun shone most brightly and the sound of the great unknown bell was heard more distinctly than ever they had a mind to go thither all except three one of them wished to go home and try on her ball dress for this very dress and the ball were the cause of her being confirmed this time otherwise she would not have been allowed to go the second a poor boy had borrowed a coat and a pair of boots from the son of his landlord to be confirmed in and he had to return them at a certain time the third said that he never went into strange places if his parents were not with him he had always been a good child and wished to remain so even after being confirmed and they ought not to tease him for this they however did it all the same these three therefore did not go the others went on the sun was shining the birds were singing and the confirmed children sang too holding each other by the hand for they had no position yet and they were all equal in the eyes of god two of the smallest soon became tired and returned to the town two little girls sat down and made garlands of flowers they therefore did not go on when the others arrived at the willow trees where the confectioner had put up his stall they said 
now we are out here the bell does not in reality exist it is only something that people imagine then suddenly the sound of the bell was heard so beautifully and solemnly from the wood that four or five made up their minds to go still further on the wood was very thickly grown it was difficult to advance wood lilies and anemones grew almost too high flowering convolvuli and brambles were hanging like garlands from tree to tree while the nightingales were singing and the sunbeams played that was very beautiful but the way was unfit for the girls they would have torn their dresses large rocks covered with moss of various hues were lying about the fresh spring water rippled forth with a peculiar sound i don't think that can be the bell said one of the confirmed children and then he lay down and listened we must try to find out if it is and there he remained and let the others walk on they came to a hut built of the bark of trees and branches a large crab-apple tree spread its branches over it as if it intended to pour all its fruit on the roof upon which roses were blooming the long boughs covered the gable where a little bell was hanging was this the one they had heard all agreed that it must be so except one who said that the bell was too small and too thin to be heard at such a distance and that it had quite a different sound to that which had so touched men's hearts he who spoke was a king's son and therefore the others said that such a one always wishes to be cleverer than other people therefore they let him go alone and as he walked on the solitude of the wood produced a feeling of reverence in his breast but still he heard the little bell about which the others rejoiced and sometimes when the wind blew in that direction he could hear the sounds from the confectioner's stall where the others were singing at tea but the deep sounds of the bell were much stronger soon it seemed to him as if an organ played an accompaniment the sound came from the left from the side where the heart is now something rustled among the bushes and a little boy stood before the king's son in wooden shoes and such a short jacket that the sleeves did not reach his wrists they knew each other the boy was the one who had not been able to go with them because he had to take the coat and boots back to his landlord's son that he had done and had started again in his wooden shoes and old clothes for the sound of the bell was too enticing he felt he must go on we might go together said the king's son but the poor boy with the wooden shoes was quite ashamed he pulled at the short sleeves of his jacket and said that he was afraid he could not walk so fast because he was of the opinion that the bell ought to be sought at the right for there was all that was grand and magnificent then we shall not meet said the king's son nodding to the poor boy who went into the deepest part of the wood where the thorns tore his shabby clothes and scratched his hands face and feet until they bled the king's son also received several good scratches but the sun was shining on his way and it is he whom we will now follow for he was a quick fellow i will and must find the bell he said if i have to go to the end of the world Ugly monkeys sat high in the branches and clenched their teeth. Shall we beat him, they said. Shall we thrash him? He is a king's son. 
but he walked on undaunted deeper and deeper into the wood where the most wonderful flowers were growing there were standing white star lilies with blood-red stamens sky-blue tulips shining when the wind moved them apple trees covered with apples like large glittering soap bubbles only think how resplendent those trees were in the sunshine all around were beautiful green meadows where hart and hind played in the grass there grew magnificent oaks and beech trees and if the bark was split of any of them long blades of grass grew out of the clefts there were also large smooth lakes in the wood on which the swans were swimming about and flapping their wings the king's son often stood still and listened sometimes he thought that the sound of the bell rose up to him out of one of those deep lakes but soon he found that this was a mistake and that the bell was ringing still further in the wood then the sun set the clouds were as red as fire it became quiet in the wood he sank down on his knees sang an evening hymn and said i shall never find what i am looking for now the sun is setting and the night the dark night is approaching yet i may perhaps see the round sun once more before he disappears beneath the horizon i will climb up these rocks they are as high as the highest trees and then taking hold of the creepers and roots he climbed up on the wet stones where water snakes were wriggling and the toads as it were barked at him he reached the top before the sun seen from such a height had quite set oh what a splendour the sea the great majestic sea which was rolling its long waves against the shore stretched out before him and the sun was standing like a large bright altar there where sea and heaven met all melted together in the most glowing colors the wood was singing and his heart too the whole of nature was one large holy church in which the trees and hovering clouds formed the pillars the flowers and grass the woven velvet carpet and heaven itself was the great cupola up there the flame colored vanished as soon as the sun disappeared but millions of stars were lighted diamond lamps were shining and the king's son stretched his arms out towards heaven toward the sea and toward the wood then suddenly the poor boy with the short-sleeved jacket and the wooden shoes appeared he had arrived just as quickly on the road he had chosen and they ran toward each other and took one another's hand in the great cathedral of nature and poesy and above them sounded the invisible holy bell happy spirits surrounding them singing hallelujahs and rejoicing end of section 15 the bell recording by joyce martin Section 16 of Hans Christian Andersen, Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joyce Martin. Hans Christian Andersen, Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 2, 1844 to 1847 by Hans Christian Andersen, translated by H. P. Paul. The Grandmother Grandmother by Hans Christian Andersen, 1845 
grandmother is very old her face is wrinkled and her hair is quite white but her eyes are like two stars they have a mild gentle expression in them when they look at you which does you good she wears a dress of heavy rich silk with large flowers worked on it and it rustles when she moves and then she can tell the most wonderful stories grandmother knows a great deal for she was alive before father and mother that's quite certain she has a hymn-book with large silver clasps in which she often reads and in the book between the leaves lies a rose quite flat and dry it is not so pretty as the roses which are standing in the glass and yet she smiles at it most pleasantly and tears even come into her eyes i wonder why grandmother looks at the withered flower in the old book that way do you know why when grandmother's tears fall upon the rose and she is looking at it the rose revives and fills the room with its fragrance the walls vanish as in a mist and all around her is the glorious green wood where in summer the sunlight streams through thick foliage and grandmother why she is young again a charming maiden fresh as a rose with round rosy cheeks fair bright ringlets and a figure pretty and graceful but the eyes those mild saintly eyes are the same they have been left to grandmother at her side sits a young man tall and strong he gives her a rose and she smiles grandmother cannot smile like that now yes she is smiling at the memory of that day and many thoughts and recollections of the past but the handsome young man is gone and the rose has withered in the old book and grandmother is sitting there again an old woman looking down upon the withered rose in the book grandmother is dead now she had been sitting in her armchair telling us a long beautiful tale and when it was finished she said she was tired and leaned her head back to sleep a while we could hear her gentle breathing as she slept gradually it became quieter and calmer and on her countenance beamed a happiness and peace it was as if lighted up with a ray of sunshine she smiled once more and then people said she was dead she was laid in a black coffin looking mild and beautiful in the white folds of the shrouded linen though her eyes were closed but every wrinkle had vanished her hair looked white and silvery and around her mouth lingered a sweet smile we did not feel at all afraid to look at the corpse of her who had been such a dear good grandmother the hymn-book in which the rose still lay was placed under her head for she had wished it and then they buried grandmother on the grave close by the churchyard wall they planted a rose tree it was soon full of roses and the nightingale sat among the flowers and sang over the grave from the organ in the church sounded the music and the words of the beautiful psalms which were written in the old book under the head of the dead one the moon shone down upon the grave but the dead was not there every child could go safely even at night and pluck a rose from the tree by the churchyard wall the dead know more than we who are living they know what a terror would come upon us if such a strange thing were to happen as the appearance of a dead person among us but they are better off than we are 
the dead return no more. The earth has been heaped on the coffin, and it is earth only that lies within it. The leaves of the hymn-book are dust, and the rose, with all its recollections, has crumbled to dust also. But over the grave fresh roses bloom, the nightingale sings, and the organ sounds, and there still lives a remembrance of old grandmother, with the loving, gentle eyes that always looked young. Eyes can never die. Ours will once again behold dear grandmother young and beautiful, as when for the first time she kissed the fresh red rose that is now dust in the grave. End of The Grandmother by Hans Christian Andersen Recording by Joyce Martin Section 17 of Hans Christian Andersen Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 2 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joyce Martin Hans Christian Andersen, Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 2, 1844-1847, by Hans Christian Andersen, translated by H. P. Paul. The Darning Needle There was once a darning needle who thought herself so fine that she fancied she must be fit for embroidery. Hold me tight, she would say to the fingers when they took her up. Don't let me fall. If you do, I shall never be found again. I am so very fine. That is your opinion, is it? said the fingers as they seized her round the body. See, I am coming with the train, said the darning needle, drawing a long thread after her. But there was no knot in the thread. The fingers then placed the point of the needle against the cook's slipper. There was a crack in the upper leather, which had to be sewn together. "'What coarse work!' said the darning needle. "'I shall never get through. I shall break. I am breaking.' And sure enough, she broke. "'Did I not say so?' said the darning needle. "'I know I am too fine for such work as that.' "'This needle is quite useless for sewing now,' said the fingers. But they still held it fast, and the cook dropped some sealing wax on the needle, and fastened her handkerchief with it in front. "'So now I am a breastpin,' said the darning needle. "'I knew very well I should come to honour some day. Merit is sure to rise.' And she laughed quietly to herself, for, of course, no one ever saw a darning needle laugh. And there she sat as proudly as if she were in a state coach, and looked all around her. "'May I be allowed to ask if you are made of gold?' she inquired of her neighbour, a pin. "'You have a very pretty appearance, and a curious head, although you are rather small. "'You must take pains to grow, for it is not every one who has sealing-wax dropped upon him.' And as she spoke, the darning-needle herself drew up so proudly that she fell out of the handkerchief right into the sink, which the cook was cleaning.' "'Now I am going on a journey,' said the needle, as she floated away with the dirty water. "'I do hope I shall not be lost.' But she really was lost in a gutter. "'I am too fine for this world,' said the darning needle, as she lay in the gutter. "'But I know who I am, and that is always some comfort.' 
so the darning needle kept up her proud behavior and did not lose her good humor then there floated over her all sorts of things chips and straws and pieces of old newspaper see how they sail said the darning needle they do not know what is under them i am here and here i shall stick see there goes a chip thinking of nothing in the world but himself only a chip there's a straw going by now how he turns and twists about don't be thinking too much of yourself or you may chance to run against a stone there swims a piece of newspaper what is written upon it has been forgotten long ago and yet it gives itself airs i sit here patiently and quietly i know who i am so i shall not move one day something lying close to the darning needle glittered so splendidly that she thought it was a diamond yet it was only a piece of broken bottle the darning needle spoke to it because it sparkled and represented herself as a breastpin. "'I suppose you are really a diamond?' she said. "'Why, yes, something of the kind,' he replied, and so each believed the other to be very valuable. And then they began to talk about the world and the conceited people in it. "'I have been in a lady's work-box,' said the darning needle, "'and this lady was the cook.' She had on each hand five fingers, and anything so conceited as these five fingers I have never seen, and yet they were only employed to take me out of the box and put me back again. Were they not high-born? High-born, said the darning needle. No, indeed, but so haughty. They were five brothers, all born fingers. They kept very proudly together, though they were of different lengths. The one who stood first in the rank was named the Thumb. He was short and thick, and had only one joint in his back, and could therefore make but one bow. But he said that if he were cut off from a man's hand, that man would be unfit for a soldier. Sweet Tooth, his neighbor, dipped himself into sweet or sour, and pointed to the sun and moon, and formed the letters when the fingers wrote. Longman, the middle finger, looked over the heads of all the others. Goldband, the next finger, wore a golden circle round his waist, and little Playman did nothing at all, and seemed proud of it. They were boasters, and boasters they will remain, and therefore I left them. And now we sit here and glitter, said the piece of broken bottle. At the same moment more water streamed into the gutter so that it overflowed, and the piece of bottle was carried away. So he is promoted, said the darning needle, while I remain here. I am too fine, but that is my pride, and what do I care? And so she sat there in her pride, and had many such thoughts as these. I could almost fancy that I came from a sunbeam, I am so fine. It seems as if the sunbeams were always looking for me under the water. Ah! I am so fine that even my mother cannot find me. Had I still my old eye which was broken off, I believe I should weep. But no, I would not do that. It is not genteel to cry. One day a couple of street boys were paddling in the gutter, for they sometimes found old nails, farthings, and other treasures. It was dirty work, but they took great pleasure in it. Hello, cried one as he pricked himself with the darning needle. Here's a fellow for you. 
i am not a fellow i am a young lady said the darning needle but no one heard her the sealing wax had come off and she was quite black but black makes a person look slender so she thought herself even finer than before here comes an eggshell sailing along said one of the boys so they stuck the darning needle into the eggshell white walls and i am black myself said the darning needle that looks well now i can be seen but i hope i shall not be seasick or i shall break again she was not seasick and she did not break it is a good thing against seasickness to have a steel stomach and not to forget one's own importance now my seasickness has passed delicate people can bear a great deal Crack went the eggshell as a wagon passed over it. Good heavens, how it crushes, said the darning needle. I shall be sick now. I am breaking. But she did not break, though the wagon went over her as she lay at full length, and there let her lie. End of section 17, The Darning Needle, recording by Joyce Martin. Section 18 of Hans Christian Andersen Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine G. Hans Christian Andersen Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 2, 1844 1847, by Hans Christian Andersen. Translated by H. P. Paul The Little Match Seller It was terribly cold and nearly dark on the last evening of the old year, and the snow was falling fast. In the cold and the darkness, a poor little girl, with bare head and naked feet, roamed through the streets. It is true she had on a pair of slippers when she left home, but they were not of much use. They were very large, so large indeed, that they had belonged to her mother, and the poor little creature had lost them in running across the street to avoid two carriages that were rolling along at a terrible rate. One of the slippers she could not find, and a boy seized upon the other and ran away with it, saying that he could use it as a cradle when he had children of his own. So the little girl went on with her little naked feet, which were quite red and blue with the cold. In an old apron she carried a number of matches, and had a bundle of them in her hands. No one had bought anything of her the whole day, nor had anyone given her even a penny. The snowflakes fell on her long, fair hair, which hung in curls on her shoulders, but she regarded them not. Lights were shining from every window, and there was a savoury smell of roast goose, for it was New Year's Eve. Yes, she remembered that. In a corner between two houses, one of which projected beyond the other, she sank down and huddled herself together. She had drawn her little feet under her, but she could not keep off the cold, and she dared not go home, for she had sold no matches and could not take home even a penny of money. Her father would certainly beat her. Besides, it was almost as cold at home as here, for they had only the roof to cover them, through which the wind howled, although the largest holes had been stopped up with straw and rags. Her little hands were almost frozen with the cold. Ah, perhaps a burning match might be some good, if she could draw it from the bundle and strike it against the wall, 
just to warm her fingers. She drew one out. Scratch! How it sputtered as it burnt! It gave a warm, bright light, like a little candle, as she held her hand over it. It was really a wonderful light. It seemed to the little girl she was sitting by a large iron stove with polished brass feet and a brass ornament. How the fire burned! And seemed so beautifully warm that the child stretched out her feet as if to warm them when, lo, the flame of the match went out. The stove vanished, and she had only the remains of the half-burnt match in her hand. She rubbed another match on the wall. It burst into flame, and where its light fell upon the wall it became as transparent as a veal, and she could see into the room. The table was covered with a snowy white tablecloth, on which stood a splendid dinner service, and a steaming roast goose stuffed with apples and dried plums. And what was still more wonderful, the goose jumped down from the dish and waddled across the floor, with a knife and fork in its breast, to the little girl. Then the match went out, and there remained nothing but the thick, damp, cold wall before her. She lighted another match, and then she found herself sitting under a beautiful Christmas tree. It was larger and more beautifully decorated than the one which she had seen through the glass door at the rich merchants. Thousands of tapers were burning upon the green branches, and coloured pictures, like those she had seen in the show-windows, looked down upon it all. The little one stretched out her hand towards them, and the match went out. The Christmas lights rose higher and higher, till they looked to her like the stars in the sky. Then she saw a star fall, leaving behind it a bright streak of fire. "'Someone is dying,' thought the little girl, for her old grandmother, the only one who had ever loved her and who was now dead, had told her that when a star falls, a soul was going up to God. She again rubbed a match on the wall, and the light shone round her. In the brightness stood her old grandmother, clear and shining, yet mild and loving in her appearance. "'Grandmother!' cried the little one. "'Oh, take me with you. I know you will go away when the match burns out. You will vanish like the warm stove, the roast goose, and the large glorious Christmas tree.' And she made haste to light a whole bundle of matches, for she wished to keep her grandmother there. And the matches glowed with a light that was brighter than the noonday, and her grandmother had never appeared so large or so beautiful. She took the little girl in her arms, and they both flew upwards in a brightness and joy far above the earth, where there was neither cold nor hunger nor pain, for they were with God. In the dawn of morning there lay the poor little one, with pale cheeks and smiling mouth, leaning against the wall. She had been frozen to death on the last evening of the year, and the New Year's sun rose and shone upon a little corpse. The child still sat, in the stiffness of death, holding the matches in her hand, one bundle of which was burnt. She tried to warm herself, said some. No one imagined what beautiful things she had seen, nor into what glory she had entered with her grandmother on New Year's Day. End of section 18 Recording by Christine G. in Oslo, Norway The 11th of March, 2012
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Section 19 of Hans Christian Andersen, Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Janny Meisberger. Hans Christian Andersen, Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 2, 1844-1847, by Hans Christian Andersen. Translated by H. P. Paul The Sunbeam and the Captive It is autumn. We stand on the ramparts and look out over the sea. We look at the numerous ships and at the Swedish coast on the opposite side of the sound, rising far above the surface of the waters, which mirror the glow of the evening sky. Behind us the wood is sharply defined. Mighty trees surround us, and yellow leaves flutter down from the branches. Below, at the foot of the wall, stands a gloomy-looking building enclosed in palisades. The space between is dark and narrow, but still more dismal must it be behind the iron gratings in the wall which cover the narrow loopholes or windows, for in these dungeons the most depraved of the criminals are confined. A ray of the setting sun shoots into the bare cells of one of the captives. For God's sun shines upon the evil and the good. The hardened criminal casts an impatient look at the bright ray. Then a little bird flies towards the grating. For birds twitter to the just as well as to the unjust. He only cries, tweet, tweet, and then perches himself near the grating, flutters his wings, pecks a feather from one of them, puffs himself out, and sets his feathers on end round his breast and throat. The bad chained man looks at him, and a more gentle expression comes into his hard face. In his breast there rises a thought which he himself cannot rightly analyse, but the thought has some connection with the sunbeam, with the bird, and with the scent of violets, which grow luxuriantly in spring at the foot of the wall. Then there comes the sound of the hunter's horn, merry and full. The little bird starts and flies away. The sunbeam gradually vanishes, and again there is darkness in the room and in the heart of that bad man. Still, the sun has shone into that heart, and the twittering of the bird has touched it. Sound on, ye glorious strains of the hunter's horn. Continue your stirring tones. For the evening is mild, and the surface of the sea, heaving slowly and calmly, is smooth as a mirror. End of The Sunbeam and the Captive Section 20 of Hans Christian Andersen, Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. 
For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joyce Martin Hans Christian Andersen, Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 2, 1844-1847, to 1847, by Hans Christian Andersen, translated by H. P. Paul. By the Almshouse Window Near the grass-covered rampart which encircles Copenhagen lies a great red house. Balsams and other flowers greet us from the long rows of windows in the house, whose interior is sufficiently poverty-stricken, and poor and old are the people who inhabit it. The building is the Wharton Almshouse. Look! At the window there leans an old maid. She plucks the withered leaf from the balsam and looks at the grass-covered rampart, on which many children are playing. What is the old maid thinking of? A whole life drama is unfolding itself before her inward gaze. The poor little children, how happy they are, how merrily they play and romp together, what red cheeks and what angel's eyes. But they have no shoes nor stockings. They dance on the green rampart, just on the place where, according to the old story, the ground always sank in, and where a sportive, frolicsome child had been lured by means of flowers, toys, and sweetmeats into an open grave ready dug for it, and which was afterwards closed over the child, and from the moment the old story says the ground gave way no longer, the mound remained firm and fast, and was quickly covered with the green turf. The little people who now play on that spot know nothing of the old tale, else would they fancy they heard a child crying deep beneath the earth and the dewdrops on each blade of grass would be to them tears of woe nor do they know anything of the danish king who here in the face of the coming foe took an oath before all his trembling courtiers that he would hold out with the citizens of his capital and die here in his nest they know nothing of the men who have fought here or of the women who from here have drenched with boiling water the enemy, clad in white, and bidding in the snow to surprise the city. No, the poor little ones are playing with light childish spirits. Play on, play on, thou little maiden. Soon the years will come, yes, those glorious years. The priestly hands have been laid on the candidates for confirmation. Hand in hand they walk on the green rampart. Thou hast a white frock on. It has cost thy mother much labor, and yet it is only cut down for thee out of an old larger dress. You will also wear a red shawl, and what if it hang too far down? People will only see how large, how very large it is. You are thinking of your dress, and of the giver of all good, so glorious is it to wander on the green rampart. And the years roll by. They have no lack of dark days, but you have your cheerful young spirit, and you have gained a friend. You know not how. You meet, oh, how often, you walk together on the rampart in the fresh spring, on the high days and holidays, when all the world come out to walk upon the ramparts, and all the bells of the church steeples seem to be singing a song of praise for the coming spring. Scarcely had the violets come forth, but there on the rampart, just opposite the beautiful castle of Rosenberg, there is a tree bright with the first green buds. 
every year this tree sends forth fresh green shoots. Alas, it is not so with the human heart. Dark mists, more in number than those that cover the northern skies, cloud the human heart. Poor child, thy friend's bridal chamber is a black coffin, and thou becomest an old maid. From the almshouse window, behind the balsams, thou shalt look on the merry children at play, and shalt see thine own history renewed. And that is the life-drama that passes before the old maid, while she looks out upon the rampart, the green, sunny rampart, where the children, with their red cheeks and bare shoeless feet, are rejoicing merrily like the other free little birds. End of Section 20 by the Almshouse Window Reading by Joyce Martin Section 21 of Hans Christian Andersen Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Noel Badrian. Hans Christian Andersen, Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 2, 1844 to 1847, by Hans Christian Andersen. Translated by H. P. Paul. The Old Street Lamp Did you ever hear the story of the old street lamp? It is not remarkably interesting, but for once in a way you may as well listen to it. It was a most respectable old lamp, which had seen many, many years of service, and now was to retire with a pension. It was this evening at its post, for the last time, giving light to the street. His feelings were something like those of an old dancer at the theatre, who is dancing for the last time, and knows that on the morrow she will be in her garret, alone and forgotten. The lamp had very great anxiety about the next day, for he knew that he had to appear for the first time at the town hall, to be inspected by the mayor and the council, who were to decide if he were fit for further service or not. Whether the lamp was good enough to be used to light the inhabitants of one of the suburbs, or in the country, at some factory, and if not, it would be sent at once to an iron foundry, to be melted down. In this latter case it might be turned into anything, and he wondered very much whether he would then be able to remember that he had once been a street lamp, and it troubled him exceedingly. Whatever might happen, one thing seemed certain that he would be separated from the watchman and his wife, whose family he looked upon as his own. The lamp had first been hung up on that very evening that the watchman, then a robust young man, had entered upon the duties of his office. Ah, well, it was a very long time since one became a lamp and the other a watchman. His wife had a little pride in those days. She seldom condescended to glance at the lamp, excepting when she passed by in the evening, never in the daytime. But in later years, when all these, the watchman, the wife and the lamp, had grown old, she had attended to it, cleaned it and supplied it with oil. The old people were thoroughly honest. They had never cheated the lamp of a single drop of the oil provided for it. This was the lamp's last night in the street, and tomorrow he must go to the town hall. 
two very dark things to think of. No wonder he did not burn brightly. Many other thoughts also passed through his mind. How many persons he had lighted on their way, and how much he had seen. As much, very likely, as the mayor and corporation themselves. None of these thoughts were uttered aloud, however, for he was a good honourable old lamp, who would not willingly do harm to anyone, especially to those in authority. As many things were recalled to his mind, the light would flash up with sudden brightness. He had, at such moments, a conviction that he would be remembered. There was a handsome young man once, thought he. It is certainly a long while ago, but I remember he had a little note, written on pink paper with a gold edge. The writing was elegant, evidently a lady's hand. Twice he read it through, and kissed it, and then looked up at me with eyes that said quite plainly, I am the happiest of men. Only he and I know what was written on this his first letter from his lady-love. Ah, yes, and there was another pair of eyes that I remember. It is really wonderful how the thoughts jump from one thing to another. A funeral passed through the street. A young and beautiful woman lay on a bier, decked with garlands of flowers and attended by torches, which quite overpowered my light. All along the street stood the people from the houses, in crowds, ready to join the procession. But when the torches had passed from before me, and I could look around, I saw one person alone, standing against my post, and weeping. Never shall I forget the sorrowful eyes that looked up at me. These and similar reflections occupied the old street lamp, on this the last time that his light would shine. The sentry, when he is relieved from his post, knows at least who will succeed him, and may whisper a few words to him. But the lamp did not know his successor, or he could have given him a few hints respecting rain or mist, and could have informed him how far the moon's rays would rest on the pavement, and from which side the wind generally blew, and so on. On the bridge over the canal stood three persons, who wished to recommend themselves to the lamp, for they thought he could give the office to whomsoever he chose. The first was a herring's head, which could emit light in the darkness. He remarked that it would be a great saving of oil if they placed him on the lamp-post. Number two was a piece of rotten wood, which also shines in the dark. He considered himself descended from an old stem, once the pride of the forest. The third was a glow-worm, and how he found his way there the lamp could not imagine. Yet there he was and could really give light as well as the others. But the rotten wood and the herring's head declared most solemnly, by all they held sacred, that the glow-worm only gave light at certain times, and must not be allowed to compete with themselves. The old lamp assured them that not one of them could give sufficient light to fill the position of a street-lamp, but they would believe nothing he said, and when they discovered that he had not the power of naming his successor, they said they were very glad to hear it, for the lamp was too old and worn out to make a proper choice. At this moment the wind came rushing round the corner of the street, and through the air-holes of the old lamp. "'What is this, I hear?' said he. "'That you are going away to-morrow? Is this evening the last time we shall meet? Then I must present you with a farewell gift. I will blow into your brain, so that in future you shall not only be able to remember all that you have seen or heard in the past, 
but your light within shall be so bright that you shall be able to understand all that is said or done in your presence oh that is really a very very great gift said the old lamp i thank you most heartily i only hope i shall not be melted down that is not likely to happen yet said the wind and i will also blow a memory into you so that should you receive other similar presents your old age will pass very pleasantly that is if i am not melted down said the lamp but should i in that case still retain my memory do be reasonable old lamp said the wind puffing away at this moment the moon burst forth from the clouds what will you give the old lamp asked the wind i can give nothing she replied i am on the wane and no lamps have ever given me light while i have frequently shone upon them and with these words the moon hid herself again behind the clouds that she might be saved from further importunities just then a drop fell upon the lamp from the roof of the house but the drop explained that he was a gift from those grey clouds and perhaps the best of all gifts i shall penetrate you so thoroughly he said that you will have the power of becoming rusty and if you wish it to crumble into dust in one night but this seemed to the lamp to be a very shabby present and the wind thought so too does no one give any more will no one give any more shouted the breath of the wind as loud as it could then a bright falling star came down leaving a broad luminous streak behind it what was that cried the herring's head did not a star fall i really believe it went into the lamp certainly when such high-born personages try for the office we may as well say good-night and go home and so they did all three while the old lamp threw a wonderfully strong light all around him this is a glorious gift said he the bright stars have always been a joy to me and have always shone more brilliantly than i ever could shine though i have tried with my whole might and now they have noticed me a poor old lamp and have sent me a gift that will enable me to see clearly everything that i remember as if it still stood before me and to be seen by all those who love me and therein lies the truest pleasure for joy which we cannot share with others is only half enjoyed that sentiment does you honour said the wind but for this purpose wax lights will be necessary if these are not lighted in you your particular faculties will not benefit others in the least the stars have not thought of this they suppose that you and every other light must be a wax taper but i must go down now so he laid himself to rest wax tapers indeed said the lamp i have never yet had these nor is it likely i ever shall if i could only be sure of not being melted down the next day well perhaps we had better pass over the next day the evening had come and the lamp was resting in the grandfather's chair and guess where why at the old watchman's house he had begged as a favour that the mayor and corporation would allow him to keep the street lamp in consideration of his long and faithful service as he had himself hung it up and lit it on the day he first commenced his duties four and twenty years ago he looked upon it almost as his own child he had no children so the lamp was given to him there it lay in the great armchair near to the warm stove 
it seemed almost as if it had grown larger for it appeared quite to fill the chair the old people sat at their supper casting friendly glances at the old lamp whom they would willingly have admitted to a place at the table it is quite true that they dwelt in a cellar two yards deep in the earth and they had to cross a stone passage to get to their room but within it was warm and comfortable and strips of list had been nailed around the door the bed and the little window had curtains and everything looked clean and neat on the window seat stood two curious flower pots which a sailor named christian had brought over from the east or west indies they were of clay and in the form of two elephants with open backs they were hollow and filled with earth and through the open space flowers bloomed in one grew some very fine chives or leeks this was the kitchen garden the other elephant which contained a beautiful geranium they called their flower garden on the wall hung a large colored print representing the congress of vienna and all the kings and emperors at once a clock with heavy weights hung on the wall and went tick tick steadily enough yet it was always rather too fast which however the old people said was better than being too slow they were now eating their supper while the old street lamp as we have heard lay in the grandfather's armchair near the stove it seemed to the lamp as if the whole world had turned round but after a while the old watchman looked at the lamp and spoke of what they had both gone through together in rain and in fog during the short bright nights of summer or in the long winter nights through the drifting snowstorms when he longed to be at home in the cellar then the lamp felt it was all right again he saw everything that had happened quite clearly as if it were passing before him surely the wind had given him an excellent gift the old people were very active and industrious they were never idle for even a single hour on sunday afternoons they would bring out some books generally a book of travels which they were very fond of the old man would read aloud about africa with its great forests and the wild elephants while his wife would listen attentively stealing a glance now and then at the clay elephants which served as flower-pots i can almost imagine i'm seeing it all she said and then how the lamp wished for a wax taper to be lighted in him for then the old woman would have seen the smallest detail as clearly as he did himself the lofty trees with their thickly entwined branches the naked negroes on horseback and whole herds of elephants treading down bamboo thickets with their broad heavy feet what is the use of all my capabilities sighed the old lamp when i cannot obtain any wax lights they have only oil and tallow here and these will not do one day a great heap of wax candle ends found their way into the cellar the larger pieces were burnt and the smaller ones the old woman kept for waxing her thread so there were now candles enough but it never occurred to any one to put a little piece in the lamp here i am now with my rare powers thought the lamp i have faculties within me but i cannot share them they do not know that i could cover these white walls with beautiful tapestry or change them into noble forests or indeed to anything else they might wish for the lamp however was always kept clean and shining in a corner where it attracted all eyes 
strangers looked upon it as lumber but the old people did not care for that they loved the lamp one day it was the watchman's birthday the old woman approached the lamp smiling to herself and said i will have an illumination to-day in honour of my old man and the lamp rattled in his metal frame for he thought now at last i shall have a light within me but after all no wax light was placed in the lamp but oil as usual the lamp burned through the whole evening and began to perceive too clearly that the gift of the stars would remain a hidden treasure all his life then he had a dream for to one with his faculties dreaming was no difficulty it appeared to him that the old people were dead and that he had been taken to the iron foundry to be melted down it caused him quite as much anxiety as on the day when he had been called upon to appear before the mayor and the council at the town hall but though he had been endowed with the power of falling into decay from rust when he pleased he did not make use of it he was therefore put into the melting furnace and changed into as elegant an iron candlestick as you could wish to see one intended to hold a wax taper the candlestick was in the form of an angel holding a nosegay in the centre of which the wax taper was to be placed it was to stand on a green writing table in a very pleasant room many books were scattered about and splendid paintings hung on the walls the owner of the room was a poet and a man of intellect everything he thought or wrote was pictured around him nature showed herself to him sometimes in the dark forests or at others in cheerful meadows where the storks were strutting about or on the deck of a ship sailing across the foaming sea with the clear blue sky above or at night in the glittering stars what powers i possess said the lamp awaking from his dream i could almost wish to be melted down but no that must not be while the old people live they love me for myself alone they keep me bright and supply me with oil i am as well off as the picture of the congress in which they take so much pleasure and from that time he felt at rest in himself and not more so than such an honourable old lamp rarely deserved to be end of the old street lamp recording by noel badrian county offaly ireland section twenty two of hans christian andersen fairy tales and short stories volume two this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Hans Christian Andersen, Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 2, 1844 to 1847, by Hans Christian Andersen. Translated by H.P. Paul. The Neighboring Families. By Hans Christian Andersen, 1847 one would have thought that something important was going on in the duck pond but it was nothing after all all the ducks lying quietly on the water or standing on their heads in it for they could do that at once swarmed to the sides the traces of their feet were seen in the wet earth and their cackling was heard far and wide the water which a few moments before had been as clear and smooth as a mirror became very troubled before every tree 
every neighbouring bush, the old farmhouse with the holes in the roof and the swallow's nest, and especially the great rose bush full of flowers, had been reflected in it. The rose bush covered the wall and hung out over the water, in which everything was seen as if in a picture, except that it was all stood on its head. But when the water was troubled, everything got mixed up, and the picture was gone. Two feathers, which the fluttering ducks had lost, floated up and down. Suddenly they took a rush as if the wind were coming, but as it did not come, they had to lie still and the water once again became quiet and smooth. The roses were again reflected. They were very beautiful, but they did not know it, for no one had told them. The sun shone among the delicate leaves. Everything breathed forth the loveliest fragrance, and all felt as we do when we are filled with joy at the thought of our happiness. How beautiful existence is, said each rose. The only thing I wish for is to be able to kiss the sun, because it is so warm and bright. I should also like to kiss those roses down in the water, which are so much like us, and the pretty little birds down in the nest. There are some up above, too. They put out their heads and pipe softly. They have no feathers like their father and mother. We have good neighbours, both below and above. How beautiful existence is! The young ones above and below, those below were really only shadows in the water, were sparrows. Their parents were sparrows too, and had taken possession of an empty swallow's nest of last year, and now lived in it as if it were their own property. Are those the ducks' children swimming here? asked the young sparrows when they saw the feathers on the water. If you must ask questions, ask sensible ones, said their mother. Don't you see that they are feathers, such as I wear, and you will wear too? But ours are finer. Still, I shouldn't like to have them up in the nest, for they keep one warm. I'm very curious to know what the ducks were so startled about. Not about us, certainly, although I did say peep to you pretty loudly. The thick-headed roses ought to know why, but they know nothing at all. They only look at themselves and smell. I'm heartily tired of such neighbours. Listen to the dear little birds up there, said the roses. They begin to want to sing too, but are not able to manage it yet. But it will soon come. What a pleasure that must be. It is fine to have such cheerful neighbours. Suddenly, two horses came galloping up to be watered. A peasant boy rode on one, and he had taken off all his clothes except his large, broad black hat. The boy whistled like a bird and rode into the pond where it was deepest, and as he passed the rose bush, he plucked a rose and stuck it in his hat. Now he looked dressed and rode on. The other roses looked after their sister and asked each other, where can she be going to? But none of them knew. I should like to go out into the world for once, said one. But here at home, among our green leaves, it is beautiful too. The whole day long the sun shines bright and warm, 
and in the night the sky shines more beautifully still. We can see through all the little holes in it. They meant the stars, but they knew no better. We make it lively about the house, said the sparrow mother, and people say that a swallow's nest brings luck, so they are glad of us. But such neighbours as ours. A rose bush on the wall like that causes damp. I dare say it will be taken away. Then we shall perhaps have some corn growing here. The roses are good for nothing but to be looked at and to be smelt, or at most to be stuck in a hat. Every year, as I have been told by my mother, they fall off. The farmer's wife preserves them and strews salt among them, and then they get a French name, which I can neither pronounce nor care to, and are put into the fire to make a nice smell. You see, that's their life. They exist only for the eye and the nose. Now you know. In the evening, when the gnats were playing about in the warm air and in the red clouds, the nightingale came and sang to the roses that the beautiful was like sunshine to the world and that the beautiful lived for ever. The roses thought that the nightingale was singing about itself and that one might easily have believed. They had no idea that the song was about them, but they were very pleased with it and wondered whether all the little sparrows could become nightingales. I understand the song of that bird very well, said the young sparrows. There was only one word that was not clear to me. What does the beautiful mean? Nothing at all, answered their mother. That's only something external. Up at the hall, where the pigeons have their own house, and corn and peas are strewn before them every day, I have dined with them myself, and that you shall do in time too. But tell me what company you keep, and I'll tell you who you are. Up at the hall, they have two birds with green necks and a crest upon their heads. They can spread out their tails like a great wheel, and these are so bright with various colours that it makes one's eyes ache. These birds are called peacocks, and that is the beautiful. If they were only plucked a little, they would look no better than the rest of us. I would have plucked them already if they had not been so big. I'll pluck them, piped the young sparrow, who had no feathers yet. In the farmhouse lived a young married couple. They loved each other dearly, were industrious and active, and everything in their home looked very nice. On Sundays, the young wife came down early, plucked a handful of the most beautiful roses, and put them in a glass of water, which she placed upon the cupboard. Now I see that it is Sunday, said the husband, kissing his little wife. They sat down, read their hymn-book, and held each other by the hand, while the sun shone down upon the fresh roses and upon them. This sight is really too tedious, said the sparrow mother, who could see into the room from her nest, and she flew away. The same thing happened on the following Sunday, for every Sunday fresh roses were put into the glass. But the rose-bush bloomed as beautifully as ever. 
the young sparrows now had feathers and wanted very much to fly with their mother but she would not allow it so they had to stay home in one of her flights however it may have happened she was caught before she was aware of it in a horsehair net which some boys had attached to a tree the horsehair was drawn tightly round her leg as tightly as if the latter were to be cut off she was in great pain and terror the boys came running up and seized her and in no gentle way either it's only a sparrow they said they did not however let her go but took her home with them and every time she cried they hit her on the beak in the farmhouse was an old man who understood making soap into cakes and balls both for shaving and for washing he was a merry old man always wandering about on seeing the sparrow which the boys had brought and which they said they did not want he asked shall i make it look very pretty at these words an icy shudder ran through the sparrow mother out of his box in which were the most beautiful colours the old man took a quantity of shining leaf gold while the boys had to go and fetch some white of egg with which the sparrow was to be smeared all over the gold was stuck on to this and the sparrow mother was now gilded all over but she trembling in every limb did not think of the adornment when the soap man tore off a small piece from the red lining of his old jacket and cutting it so as to make it look like a cock's comb he stuck it to the bird's head now you will see the gold jacket fly said the old man letting the sparrow go which flew away in deadly fear with the sun shining upon her how she glittered all the sparrows and even a crow and an old boy he was too were startled at the sight but still they flew after her to learn what kind of strange bird she was driven by fear and horror she flew homeward she was almost sinking fainting to the earth while the flock of pursuing birds increased some even attempting to peck at her look at her look at her they all cried look at her look at her cried her little ones as she approached the nest that is certainly a young peacock for it glitters in all colours it makes one's eyes ache as mother told us peep that's the beautiful and then they pecked at the bird with their little beaks so that it was impossible for her to get into the nest she was so exhausted that she couldn't even say peep much less i am your mother the other birds too now fell upon the sparrow and plucked off feather after feather until she fell bleeding into the rose bush poor creature said all the roses only be still and we will hide you lean your little head against us the sparrow spread out her wings once more 
then drew them closely to her and lay dead near the neighbouring family, the beautiful fresh roses. Peep! sounded from the nest. When can mother be so long? It's more than I can understand. It cannot be a trick of hers and mean that we are now to take care of ourselves. She has left us the house as an inheritance. But to which of us is it to belong when we have families of our own? Yes, it wouldn't do for you to stay with me when I increase my household with a wife and children, said the smallest. I dare say I shall have more wives and children than you, said the second. But I am the eldest, exclaimed the third. Then they all got excited and hit out with their wings, pecked with their beaks, and flop, one after another, was thrown out of the nest. There they lay with their anger, holding their heads on one side and blinking the eye that was turned upwards. That was their way of looking foolish. They could fly a little. By practice they learned to improve and at last they agreed upon a sign by which to recognise each other if they should meet in the world later on. It was to be one peep and three scratches on the ground with the left foot. The young one who had remained behind in the nest made himself as broad as he could, for he was the proprietor. But this greatness did not last long. In the night, the red flames burst through the window and seized the roof. The dry straw blazed up high, and the whole house, together with the young sparrow, was burned. The two others, who wanted to marry, thus saved their lives by a stroke of luck. When the sun rose again, and everything looked as refreshed as if it had had a quiet sleep, there only remained of the farmhouse a few black charred beams leaning against the chimney, which was now its own master. Thick smoke still rose from the ruins, but the rose bush stood yonder, fresh, blooming, and untouched, every flower and every twig being reflected in the clear water. How beautifully the roses bloom! before the ruined house exclaimed a passer-by a pleasanter picture cannot be imagined i must have that and the man took out his portfolio a little book with white leaves he was a painter and with his pencil he drew the smoking house the charred beams and the overhanging chimney which bent more and more in the foreground he put the large blooming rose bush, which presented a charming view. For its sake alone, the whole picture had been drawn. Later in the day, the two sparrows who had been born there came by. Where is the house? they asked. Where is the nest? Peep! All is burned, and our strong brother too. That's what he has now for keeping the nest. The roses got off very well. There they still stand with their red cheeks. They certainly do not mourn at their neighbours' misfortunes. 
I don't want to talk to them, and it looks miserable here. That's my opinion. And away they went. On a beautiful sunny autumn day, one could almost have believed it was still the middle of summer. There hopped about in the dry, clean-swept courtyard before the principal entrance of the hall a number of black, white, and gaily-coloured pigeons, all shining in the sunlight. The pigeon mothers said to their young ones, Stand in groups, stand in groups, for that looks much better. What kind of creatures are those little grey ones that run about behind us? asked an old pigeon with red and green in her eyes. Little grey ones, little grey ones, she cried. They are sparrows and good creatures. We have always had the reputation of being pious, so we will allow them to pick up the corn with us. They don't interrupt our talk, and they scrape so prettily when they bow. Indeed, they were continually making three-foot scrapings with the left foot, and also said, Peep! By this means they recognised each other, for they were the sparrows from the nest on the burned house. Here is excellent fare, said the sparrow. The pigeons strutted round one another, puffed out their chests mightily, and had their own private views and opinions. Do you see that pouter pigeon? said one to the other. Do you see how she swallows the peas? She eats too many, and the best ones too. Croo, croo. How she lifts her crest, the ugly, spiteful creature. Croo, croo. And the eyes of all sparkled with malice. Stand in groups, stand in groups, little grey ones, little grey ones. Croo, croo, croo. So their chatter ran on, and so it will run on for thousands of years. The sparrows ate lustily, they listened attentively, and even stood in the ranks with the others. But it did not suit them at all. They were full, and so they left the pigeons, exchanging opinions about them, slipped in under the garden palings, and when they found the door leading into the house open, one of them, who was more than full, and therefore felt brave, hopped on to the threshold. Peep, he said, I may venture that. Peep, said the other, so may I, and something more too, and he hopped into the room. No one was there. The third sparrow, seeing this, flew still farther into the room, exclaiming, All for nothing! It's a curious man's nest all the same. And what have they put up here? What is it? Close to the sparrows, the roses were blooming. They were reflected in the water, and the charred beams leaned against the overhanging chimney. Do tell me what this is. How come this is in a room at the hall? And all three sparrows wanted to fly over the roses and the chimney, but flew against a flat wall. It was all a picture a great splendid picture which the artist had painted from a sketch peep said the sparrows it's nothing it only looks like something peep that is the beautiful do you understand it i don't and they flew away 
for some people came into the room. Days and years went by. The pigeons had often cooed, not to say growled, the spiteful creatures. The sparrows had been frozen in winter and had lived merrily in summer. They were all betrothed, or married, or whatever you like to call it. They had little ones, and of course each one thought his own the handsomest and cleverest. One flew this way, another that, and when they met they recognised each other by their peep and the three scrapes with the left foot. The eldest had remained an old maid and had no nest nor young ones. It was her pet idea to see a great city, so she flew to Copenhagen. There was a large house painted in many gay colours standing close to the castle and the canal, upon which latter were to be seen many ships laden with apples and pottery. The windows of the house were broader at the bottom than at the top, and when the sparrows looked through them, every room appeared to them like a tulip with the brightest colours and shades. But in the middle of the tulip stood white men made of marble. A few were of plaster, still looked at with sparrow's eyes that comes to the same thing. Up on the roof stood a metal chariot drawn by metal horses, and the goddess of victory, also of metal, was driving. It was Thorwaldsen's museum. How it shines! How it shines! said the maiden sparrow. I suppose that this is the beautiful. Peep! But here it is, larger than a peacock. She still remembered what in her childhood's days her mother had looked upon as the greatest among the beautiful. She flew down into the courtyard. There everything was extremely fine. Palms and branches were painted on the walls, and in the middle of the court stood a great blooming rose tree, spreading out its fresh boughs, covered with roses, over a grave. Thither flew the maiden sparrow, for she saw several of her own kind there. A peep and three-foot scrapings, in this way she had often greeted throughout the year and no one here had responded. Those who are once parted did not meet every day, and so this greeting had become a habit with her. But today, two old sparrows and a young one answered with a peep and thrice-repeated scrape with the left foot. Ah, oh, good day, good day! They were two old ones from the nest and a little one of the family. Do meet here, it's a grand place, but there's not much to eat. This is the beautiful peep. Many people came out of the side rooms where the beautiful marble statues stood and approached the grave where lay the great master who had created these works of art. All stood with enraptured faces round Thorwaldson's grave and a few picked up the fallen rose leaves and preserved them.
they had come from afar one from mighty england others from germany and france the fairest of the ladies plucked one of the roses and hid it in her bosom then the sparrows thought that the roses reigned here and that the house had been built for their sake that appeared to them to be really too much but since all the people showed their love for the roses they did not wish to be behindhand peep they said sweeping the ground with their tails and blinking with one eye at the roses they had not looked at them long before they were convinced that they were their old neighbours and so they really were the painter who had drawn the rose-bush near the ruined house had afterwards obtained permission to dig it up and had given it to the architect for fine roses had never been seen the architect had planted it upon thorwaldson's grave where it bloomed as an emblem of the beautiful and yielded fragrant red rose leaves to be carried as mementos to distant lands have you obtained an appointment here in the city asked the sparrows the roses nodded they recognized their grey neighbours and were pleased to see them again how glorious it is to live and to bloom to see old friends again and happy faces every day it is as if every day were a festival peep said the sparrows yes they really are our old neighbours we remembered their origin near the pond peep how they have got on yes some succeed while they are asleep ah there's a faded leaf i can see that quite plainly and they pecked at it till it fell off but the tree stood there fresher and greener than ever the roses bloomed in the sunshine on thorwaldson's grave and became associated with his immortal name end of the neighboring families recording by maria brook new zealand Section 23 of Hans Christian Andersen Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adina Owen. Hans Christian Andersen Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 2. 1844 to 1847 by Hans Christian Andersen translated by H P Paul Little Tuck Little Tuck was left at home to take care of his little sister Gustava who was much younger than himself and he had to learn his lessons at the same time and the two things could not very well be performed together the poor boy sat there with his sister on his lap and sung to her all the songs he knew and now and then he looked into his geography lesson that lay open before him by the next morning he had to learn by heart all the towns in zealand and all that could be described of them his mother came home at last and took gustava in her arms then tuck ran to the window and read so eagerly that he nearly read his eyes out for it had become darker and darker every minute and his mother had no money to buy a light 
There goes the old washerwoman up the lane, said the mother, as she looked out the window. The poor woman can hardly drag herself along, and now she had to drag a pail of water from the well. Be a good boy, Tuck, and run across and help the old woman, won't you? So Tuck ran across quickly and helped her, but when he came back into the room it was quite dark, and there was not a word said about a light, so he was obliged to go to bed on his little truckle bedstead, and there he lay and thought of his geography lesson, and of Zealand, and of all the master had told him. He ought really to have read it over again, but he could not for want of light, so he put the geography book under his pillow, for he had heard that this was a great help towards learning a lesson, but not always to be depended upon. He still lay thinking and thinking, when all at once it seemed as if someone kissed him on his eyes and his mouth. He slept, and yet he did not sleep, and it appeared as if the old washerwoman looked at him with kind eyes and said, "'It would be a great pity if you did not know your lesson tomorrow morning. You helped me, and now I will help you, and Providence will always keep those who help themselves.' and at the same time the book under Tuck's pillow began to move about. "'Cluck, cluck, cluck!' cried a hen as she crept towards him. "'I am a hen from Kug!' And then she told him how many inhabitants the town contained, and about a battle that had been fought there, which really was not worth speaking of. Footnote. Kug, a little town in Kug Bay. Lifting up children by placing the hands on each side of their heads is called showing them cug hens. End footnote. Crack, crack! Down fell something. It was a wooden bird, the parrot which used as a target as Presta. Footnote. Presta, still smaller town. End footnote. He said there were as many inhabitants in that town as he had nails in his body. He was very proud and said, Trevadson lived close to me. And here I am now, quite comfortable. Footnote. About a hundred paces from Presta lies the estate of Nusa, where Tervadsen usually resided while in Denmark, and where he executed many memorable works. End footnote. But now little Tuck was no longer in bed. All in a moment he found himself on horseback. Gallop, gallop. Away he went, seated in front of a richly attired knight with a waving plume, who held him on the saddle, and so they rode through the wood by the old town of Ordingburg, which was very large and busy. The king's castle was surrounded by lofty towers, and a radiant light streamed from all the windows. Within there were songs and dancing. King Valdemar and the young gaily dressed ladies of the court were dancing together. Morning dawned, and as the sun rose, the whole city and the king's castle sank suddenly down together. One tower after another fell, till at last only one remained, standing on the hill where the castle had formerly been. Footnote. Vordingburg, under King Valdemar, was a place of great importance. Now it is a very insignificant town. Only a lonely tower and the remains of a well show where the castle once stood. End footnote. The town now appeared, small and poor, and the schoolboys read in their books, which they carried under their arms, that it contained two thousand inhabitants. But this was a mere boast, for it did not contain so many. And again little Tuck lay in his bed, scarcely knowing whether he was dreaming or not, for someone stood by him. Tuck! Little Tuck! 
said a voice. It was a very little person who spoke. He was dressed as a sailor and looked small enough to be a middy, but he was not one. I bring you many greetings from Corsa. Footnote. Corsa, on the Great Belt, used to be called the most tiresome town in Denmark before the establishment of steamers. Travelers had to wait for a favorable wind. The title tiresome was ingeniously added to the Danish escutcheon by a witticism of vaudeville Haberg's. The poet Battison was born here. End footnote. It is a rising town full of life. It has steamships and mail coaches. In times past, they used to call it ugly, but that is no longer true. I lie on the seashore, said Corsa. I have high roads and pleasure gardens. I have given birth to a poet who was witty and entertaining, which they are not all. I once wanted to fit out a ship to sail round the world, but I did not accomplish it, though most likely I might have done so. But I am fragrant with perfume, for close to my gates most lovely roses bloom. Then, before the eyes of little Tuck, appeared a confusion of colors, red and green, but it cleared off, and he could distinguish a cliff close to the bay, the slopes of which were quite overgrown with verdure, and on its summit stood a fine old church with pointed towers. Springs of water flowed out of the cliff in thick water spouts, so that there was a continual splashing. Close by sat an old king with a golden crown on his head. This was King Roar of the Springs, and near the springs stood the town of Roskilde, as it is called. Footnote. Roskilde, from Roskel, Rose Spring, falsely called Rothschild, once the capital of Denmark. The town took its name from King Roar, and from the numerous springs in the neighborhood. In its beautiful cathedral, most of the kings and queens of Denmark are buried. In Roskilde, the Danish states used to assemble. End footnote. Then all the kings and queens of Denmark went up the ascent to the old church, hand in hand, with golden crowns on their heads, while the organ played and the fountain sent forth jets of water. Little Tuck saw and heard it all. Don't forget the names of these towns, said King Horror. All at once, everything vanished. But where? It seemed to him like turning over the leaves of a book. And now there stood before him an old pleasant woman who had come from Sora, where the grass grows in the marketplace. Footnote. Sora, a very quiet little town in a beautiful situation, surrounded by forests and lakes. Holberg, the Moliere of Denmark, founded a noble academy here. The poets Honk and Hugemann were professors here. Letstern lives there still. End footnote. She had a green linen apron thrown over her head and shoulders, and it was quite wet, as if it had been raining heavily. Yes, that it has, said she. And then, just as she was going to tell him a great many pretty stories from Holberg's comedies, and about Valdemar and Absalom, she suddenly shrunk up together, and wagged her head as if she were a frog about to spring. Grrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrr
and now I have fresh, rosy-cheeked boys in the bottom of the bottle, and they learned wisdom, Hebrew, and Greek. Croak! How it sounded like the cry of the frogs on the moor, or like the creaking of great boots when someone is marching. Always the same tone, so monotonous and wearing, that little Tuck at length fell fast asleep, and then the sound could not annoy him. But even in this sleep came a dream or something like it. His little sister, Gustava, with her blue eyes and fair curly hair, had grown up a beautiful maiden all at once, and without having wings she could fly, and they flew together over Zealand, over green forests and blue lakes. Hark, so you hear the cock crow, little Tuck. Cock-a-doodle-doo. The fowls are flying out of Kug. You shall have a large farmyard. You shall never suffer or hunger or want. The birds of good omen shall be yours, and you shall become a rich and happy man. Your house shall rise up like King Valdemar's towers, and shall be richly adorned with marble statues like those at Presta. Understand me well, your name shall travel with fame round the world, like the ship that was to sail from Corsa, and at Breskilda. Don't forget the names of the towns, as King Horror said. You shall speak well and clearly, little Tuck, and when at last you lie in your grave, you shall sleep peacefully as... As if I lay in Sora, said little Tuck, awaking. It was bright daylight, and he could not remember his dream, but that was not necessary. For we are not to know what will happen to us in the future. Then he sprang out of bed quickly and read over his lesson in the book and knew it all at once quite correctly. The old washerwoman put her head in the door and nodded to him quite kindly and said, Many thanks, you good child, for your help yesterday. I hope all your beautiful dreams will come true. Little Tuck did not at all know what he had dreamt, but one above did. End of Little Tuck Recording by Adina Owen Section 24 of Hans Christian Andersen. Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jerry James. Hans Christian Andersen. Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 2. 1844 to 1847 by Hans Christian Andersen, translated by H. P. Paul. The Shadow, by Hans Christian Andersen, 1847. In very hot climates, where the heat of the sun has great power, people are usually as brown as mahogany, and in the hottest countries they are negroes with black skins. A learned man once traveled into one of these warm climates from the cold regions of the north, and thought he would roam about as he did at home but he soon had to change his opinion he found that like all sensible people he must remain in the house during the whole day with every window and door closed so that it looked as if all in the house were asleep or absent the houses of the narrow street in which he lived were so lofty that the sun shone upon them from morning till evening and it became quite unbearable this learned man from the cold regions was young as well as clever but it seemed to him as if he were sitting in an oven, and he became quite exhausted and weak, and grew so thin that his shadow shriveled up and became much smaller than it had been at home. 
The sun took away even what was left of it, and he saw nothing of it until the evening after sunset. It really was a pleasure, as soon as the lights were brought into the room, to see the shadow stretch itself against the wall, even to the ceiling, so tall was it, and it really wanted a good stretch to recover its strength. The learned man would sometimes go out into the balcony to stretch himself also, and as soon as the stars came forth in the clear, beautiful sky, he felt revived. People at this hour began to make their appearance in all the balconies in the street, for in warm climates every window has a balcony in which they can breathe the fresh evening air, which is very necessary even to those who are used to a heat that makes them as brown as mahogany, so that the street presented a very lively appearance. Here were shoemakers and tailors and all sorts of people sitting. In the street beneath they brought out tables and chairs, lighted candles by hundreds, talked and sang, and were very merry. There were people walking, carriages driving, and mules trotting along with their bills on the harness, tingle-tingle as they went. Then the dead were carried to the grave with the sound of solemn music and the tolling of the church bells. It was indeed a scene of varied life in the street. One house only, which was just opposite to the one in which the foreign learned man lived, formed a contrast to all this, for it was quite still, and yet somebody dwelt there. For flowers stood in the balcony, blooming beautifully in the hot sun, and this could not have been unless they had been watered carefully. Therefore, someone must be in the house to do this. The doors leading to the balcony were half opened in the evening, and even though in the front room all was dark, music could be heard from the interior of the house. The foreign learned man considered this music very delightful, but perhaps he fancied it, for everything in these warm countries pleased him, excepting the heat of the sun. The foreign landlord said he did not know who had taken the opposite house. Nobody was to be seen there, and as to the music, he thought it seemed very tedious, to him most uncommonly so. It was just as if someone was practicing a piece that he could not manage. It is always the same piece. He thinks, I suppose, he will be able to manage it at last, but I do not think so, however long he may play it. Once the foreigner woke in the night. He slept with the door open which led to the balcony. The wind had raised the curtain before it, and there appeared a wonderful brightness over all the balcony of the opposite house. The flowers seemed like flames of the most gorgeous colors, and among the flowers stood a beautiful slender maiden. It was to him as if light streamed from her and dazzled his eyes, but then he had only just opened them as he awoke from his sleep. With one spring he was out of bed and crept softly behind the curtain, but she was gone. The brightness had disappeared, the flowers no longer appeared like flames, although still as beautiful as ever. The door stood ajar, and from an inner room sounded music so sweet and so lovely that it produced the most enchanting thoughts and acted on the senses with magic power. Who could live there? Where was the real entrance? For, both in the street and in the lane at the side, the whole ground floor was a continuation of shops, and people could not always be passing through them. One evening the foreigner sat in the balcony. A light was burning in his own room just behind him. It was quite natural, therefore, that his shadow should fall on the wall of the opposite house, so that as he sat amongst the flowers on his balcony, when he moved, his shadow moved also. I think my shadow is the only living thing to be seen opposite, said the learned man. See how pleasantly it sits among the flowers. The door is only ajar. The shadow ought to be clever enough to go step in and look about him, and then to come back and tell me what he has seen. You could make yourself useful in this way, he said jokingly. Be so good as to step in now, will you? And then he nodded to the shadow, and the shadow nodded in return. Now go, but don't stay away altogether. 
Then the foreigner stood up, and the shadow on the opposite balcony stood up also. The foreigner turned round, the shadow turned, and if anyone had observed, they might have seen it go straight into the half-open door of the opposite balcony as the learned man re-entered his own room and let the curtain fall. The next morning he went out to take his coffee and read the newspapers. "'How is this?' he exclaimed as he stood in the sunshine. "'I have lost my shadow, so it really did go away yesterday evening, and it has not returned. This is very annoying.' And it certainly did vex him, not so much because the shadow was gone, but because he knew there was a story of a man without a shadow. All the people at home in his country knew this story, and when he returned and related his own adventures, they would say it was only an imitation, and he had no desire for such things to be said of him. So he decided not to speak of it at all, which was a very sensible determination. In the evening he went out again on his balcony, taking care to place the light behind him, for he knew that a shadow always wants his master for a screen, but he could not entice him out. He made himself little, and he made himself tall, but there was no shadow, and no shadow came. He said, ahem, ahem, but it was all useless. That was very vexatious, but in warm countries everything grows quickly, and after a week had passed, he saw, to his great joy, that a new shadow was growing from his feet when he walked in the sunshine, so that the root must have remained. After three weeks, he had quite a respectable shadow, which, during his return journey to northern lands, continued to grow and became at last so large that he might very well have spared half of it. When this learned man arrived home, he wrote books about the true, the good, and the beautiful which are to be found in this world, and so days and years passed, many, many years. One evening, as he sat in his study, a very gentle tap was heard at the door. "'Come in,' said he, but no one came. He opened the door, and there stood before him a man so remarkably thin that he felt seriously troubled at his appearance. He was, however, very well dressed and looked like a gentleman. To whom have I the honor of speaking, said he. Ah, I hoped you would recognize me, said the elegant stranger. I have gained so much that I have a body of flesh and clothes to wear. You never expected to see me in such a condition. Do you not recognize your old shadow? Ah, you never expected that I should return to you again. All has been prosperous with me since I was with you last. I have become rich in every way. And, were I inclined to purchase my freedom from service, I could easily do so. And as he spoke, he rattled between his fingers a number of costly trinkets which hung on a thick gold watch chain he wore round his neck. Diamond rings sparkled on his fingers. And it was all real. I cannot recover from my astonishment, said the learned man. What does all this mean? Something rather unusual, said the shadow. But you are yourself an uncommon man, and you know very well that I have followed in your footsteps ever since your childhood. As soon as you found that I have traveled enough to be trusted alone, I went my own way, and I am now in the most brilliant circumstances. But I felt a kind of longing to see you once more before you die, and I wanted to see this place again, for there is always a clinging to the land of one's birth. I know that you have now another shadow. Do I owe you anything? If so, have the goodness to say what it is. No! Is it really you? said the learned man. Well, this is most remarkable. I never supposed it possible that a man's old shadow could become a human being. Just tell me what I owe you said the shadow, for I do not like to be in debt to any man. 
How can you walk in that manner? said the learned man. What question of deck can there be between us? You are as free as anyone. I rejoice exceedingly to hear of your good fortune. Sit down, old friend, and tell me a little of how it happened, and what you saw in the house opposite to me while we were in those hot climates. Yes, I will tell you all about it, said the shadow, sitting down. But then you must promise me never to tell in this city, wherever you may meet me, that I have been your shadow. I am thinking of being married, for I have more than sufficient to support a family. Make yourself quite easy, said the learned man. I will tell no one who you really are. Here is my hand. I promise, and a word is sufficient between man and man. Between man and a shadow, said the shadow, for he could not help saying so. It was really most remarkable how very much he had become a man in his appearance. He was dressed in a suit of the very finest black cloth, polished boots, and an opera crush hat, which could be folded together so that nothing could be seen but the crown and the rim, besides the trinkets, the gold chain, and the diamond rings already spoken of. The shadow was, in fact, very well dressed, and this made a man of him. Now I will relate to you what you wish to know, said the shadow, placing his foot with the polished leather boot as firmly as possible on the arm of the new shadow of the learned man, which lay at his feet like a poodle dog. This was done, it might be from pride, or perhaps that the new shadow might cling to him, but the prostrate shadow remained quite quiet and at rest, in order that it might listen, for it wanted to know how a shadow could be sent away by its master and become a man itself do you know said the shadow that in the house opposite to you lived the most glorious creature in the world it was poetry i remained there three weeks and it was more like three thousand years for i read all that has ever been written in poetry or prose and i may say in truth that i saw and learned everything poetry exclaimed the learned man yes she lives as a hermit in great cities poetry well i saw her once for a very short moment while sleep weighed down my eyelids she flashed upon me from the balcony like a radiant aurora borealis surrounded with flowers like flames of fire tell me you were on the balcony that evening you went through the door and what did you see i found myself in an ante-room said the shadow you still sat opposite to me looking into the room there was no light, or at least it seemed in partial darkness, for the door of a whole suite of rooms stood open, and they were brilliantly lighted. The blaze of light would have killed me had I approached too near the maiden myself, but I was cautious and took time, which is what everyone ought to do. "'And what didst thou see?' asked the learned man. "'I saw everything, as you shall hear, but... It really is not pride on my part as a free man and possessing the knowledge that I do, besides my position, not to speak of my wealth. I wish you would say you to me instead of thou. I beg your pardon, said the learned man. It is an old habit which it is difficult to break. You are quite right. I will try to think of it. But now tell me everything that you saw. Everything, said the shadow, for I saw and know everything. "'What was the appearance of the inner rooms?' asked the scholar. "'Was it there like a cool grove or like a holy temple? "'Were the chambers like a starry sky seen from the top of a high mountain?' "'It was all that you described,' said the shadow. "'But I did not go quite in. "'I remained in the twilight of the anteroom, but I was in a very good position. "'I could see and hear all that was going on in the court of poetry.' 
but what did you see did the gods of ancient times pass through the rooms did old heroes fight their battles over again were there lovely children at play who related their dreams i tell you i have been there and therefore you may be sure that i saw everything that was to be seen if you had gone there you would not have remained a human being whereas i became one and at the same moment i became aware of my inner being my inborn affinity to the nature of poetry it is true i did not think much about it while i was with you but you will remember that i was always much larger at sunrise and sunset and in the moonlight even more visible than yourself but i did not then understand my inner existence in the anteroom it was revealed to me i became a man i came out in full maturity but you had left the warm countries as a man i felt ashamed to go about without boots or clothes and that exterior finish by which man is known so i went my own way i can tell you for you will not put it in a book i hid myself under the cloak of a cake woman but she little thought who she concealed it was not till evening that i ventured out i ran about the streets in the moonlight i drew myself up to my full height upon the walls which tickled my back very pleasantly i ran here and there indeed ought to see in fact it is a bad world and i would not care to be a man but that men are of some importance i saw the most miserable things going on between husbands and wives parents and children sweet incomparable children i have seen what no human being has the power of knowing although they would all be very glad to know the evil conduct of their neighbors had i written a newspaper how eagerly it would have been read instead of which i wrote directly to the persons themselves and great alarm arose in all the town i visited they had so much fear of me and yet how dearly they loved me the professor made me a professor the tailor gave me new clothes i am well provided for in that way the overseer of the mint struck coins for me the women declared that i was handsome and so i became the man you now see me and now i must say adieu here is my card i live on the sunny side of the street and always stay at home in rainy weather and the shadow departed this is all very remarkable said the learned man years passed days and years went by and the shadow came again how are you going on now he asked ah said the learned man i'm writing about the true the beautiful and the good but no one cares to hear anything about it i am quite in despair for i take it to heart very much that is what i never do said the shadow i'm growing quite fat and stout which everyone ought to be you do not understand the world you will make yourself ill about it you ought to travel i am going on a journey in the summer will you go with me i should like a traveling companion will you travel with me as my shadow it would give me great pleasure and i will pay all expenses are you going to travel far asked the learned man that is a matter of opinion replied the shadow at all events a journey will do you good and if you will be my shadow then all your journey shall be paid it appears to me very absurd said the learned man but this is the way of the world replied the shadow and always will be then he went away everything went wrong with the learned man sorrow and trouble pursued him and what he said about the good the beautiful and the true was of as much value to most people as a nutmeg would be to a cow 
At length he fell ill. You really look like a shadow, people said to him. And then a cold shudder would pass over him, for he had his own thoughts on the subject. You really ought to go to some watering place, said the shadow on his next visit. There is no other chance for you. I will take you with me for the sake of old acquaintance. I will pay the expenses of your journey, and you will write a description of it to amuse us by the way. I should like to go to a watering place. My beard does not grow as it ought, which is from weakness, and I must have a beard. Now do be sensible, and accept my proposal. We shall travel as intimate friends. And at last they started together. The shadow was master now and the master became the shadow. They drove together, and rode, and walked in company with each other, side by side, or one in front and the other behind, according to the position of the sun. The shadow always knew when to take the place of honor, but the learned man took no notice of it, for he had a good heart, and was exceedingly mild and friendly. One day the master said to the shadow, We have grown up together from our childhood, and now that we have become traveling companions, Shall we not drink to our good fellowship, and say thee and thou to each other? What you say is very straightforward and kindly meant, said the shadow, who was now really master. I will be equally kind and straightforward. You are a learned man, and know how wonderful human nature is. There are some men who cannot endure the smell of brown paper. It makes them ill. I myself have a similar kind of feeling when I hear anyone say, thou to me. I feel crushed by it, as I used to feel in my former position with you. You will perceive that this is a matter of feeling, not pride. I cannot allow you to say thou to me. I will gladly say it to you, and therefore your wish will be half fulfilled. Then the shadow addressed his former master as thou. It is going rather too far, said the latter, that I am to say you when I speak to him, and he is to say thou to me. However, he was obliged to submit. They arrived at length at the baths, where there were many strangers, and among them a beautiful princess, whose real disease consisted in being too sharp-sighted, which made everyone very uneasy. She saw at once that the newcomer was very different to everyone else. They say he is here to make his beard grow, she thought, but I know the real cause. He is unable to cast a shadow. Then she became very curious on the matter, and one day, while on the promenade, she entered into conversation with the strange gentleman. Being a princess, she was not obliged to stand upon much ceremony, so she said to him without hesitation, Your illness consists in not being able to cast a shadow. Your royal highness must be on the high road to recovery from your illness, said he. I know your complaint arose from being too sharp-sighted, and in this case it has entirely failed. I happen to have a most unusual shadow. Have you not seen a person who is always at my side? Persons often give their servants finer cloth for their liveries than for their own clothes, and so I have dressed out my shadow like a man. Nay, you may observe that I have even given him a shadow of his own. It is rather expensive, but I like to have things about me that are peculiar. How is this? thought the princess. Am I really cured? This must be the best watering place in existence. Water in our times is certainly wonderful power, but I will not leave this place yet, just as it begins to be amusing. This foreign prince, for he must be a prince, pleases me above all things. I only hope his beard won't grow, or he will leave at once. 
In the evening, the princess and the shadow danced together in the large assembly rooms. She was light, but he was lighter still, and she had never seen such a dancer before. She told him from what country she had come and found he knew it and had been there but not while she was at home he had looked into the windows of her father's palace both the upper and the lower windows he had seen many things and could therefore answer the princess and make all illusions which quite astonished her she thought he must be the cleverest man in all the world and felt the greatest respect for his knowledge when she danced with him again she fell in love with him which the shadow quickly discovered for she had with her eyes looked him through and through they danced once more and she was nearly telling him but she had some discretion she thought of her country her kingdom and the number of people over whom she would one day have to rule he is a clever man she thought to herself which is a good thing and he dances admirably which is also good but has he well-grounded knowledge that is an important question and i must try him then she asked him a most difficult question she herself could not have answered it and the shadow made a most unaccountable grimace you cannot answer that said the princess i learned something about it in my childhood he replied and believe that even my very shadow standing over there by the door could answer it your shadow said the princess indeed that would be very remarkable i do not say so positively observed the shadow but i am inclined to believe that he can do so he has followed me for so many years and has heard so much from me that i think it very likely but your royal highness must allow me to observe that he is very proud of being considered a man and to put him in good humor so that he may answer correctly he must be treated as a man i shall be very pleased to do so said the princess so she walked up to the learned man who stood in the doorway and spoke to him of the sun and of the moon of the green forests and of people near home and far off and the learned man conversed with her pleasantly and sensibly what a wonderful man he must be to have such a clever shadow thought she if i were to choose him it would be a real blessing to my country and my subjects and i will do it so the princess and the shadow were soon engaged to each other but no one was to be told a word about it till she returned to her kingdom no one shall know said the shadow not even my own shadow and he had very particular reasons for saying so after a time the princess returned to the land over which she reigned and the shadow accompanied her listen my friend said the shadow to the learned man now that i am as fortunate and as powerful as any man can be i will do something unusually good for you you shall live in my palace drive with me in the royal carriage and have a hundred thousand dollars a year but you must allow everyone to call you a shadow and never venture to say that you have been a man and once a year when i sit in my balcony in the sunshine you must lie at my feet as becomes a shadow to do for i must tell you i am going to marry the princess and our wedding will take place this evening now really this is too ridiculous said the learned man i cannot and will not submit to such folly it would be cheating the whole country and the princess also i will disclose everything and say that i am the man and you are the shadow dressed up in men's clothes no one would believe you said the shadow be reasonable now or i will call the guards i will go straight to the princess said the learned man but i shall be there first replied the shadow and you will be sent to prison and so it turned out for the guards readily obeyed him as they knew he was going to marry the king's daughter 
you tremble said the princess when the shadow appeared before her has anything happened you must not be ill to-day for this evening our wedding will take place i have gone through the most terrible affair that could possibly happen said the shadow only imagine my shadow has gone mad i suppose such a poor shallow brain could not bear much he fancies that he has become a real man and that i am his shadow how very terrible cried the princess is he locked up oh yes certainly for i fear he will never recover poor shadow said the princess it is very unfortunate for him it would be a really good deed to free him from his frail existence and indeed when i think of how often people take the part of the lower class against the higher in these days it would be policy to put him out of the way quietly it is certainly rather hard upon him for he was a faithful servant said the shadow and he pretended to sigh yours is a noble character said the princess and bowed herself before him in the evening the whole town was illuminated and cannons fired boom and the soldiers presented arms it was indeed a grand wedding the princess and the shadow stepped out on the balcony to show themselves and to receive one cheer more but the learned man heard nothing of all these festivities for he had already been executed end of fairy tales and short stories volume two eighteen forty four to eighteen forty seven by Hans Christian Andersen, translated by H. P. Paul.